All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Peter Mann. Peter is CEO and founder of Virginia-based Aransi, a leading air purification company known for its efficient, intuitive, and reliable products for consumers, schools, organizations, and businesses. He also is the chair of the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers Air Cleaner Council. Peter is late diagnosed autistic and now advocates for autism awareness in the workplace. Peter, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Excited to be here. So share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to doing what you're doing with Aransi. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Syracuse, New York. I went to college in Rochester nearby and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I took a Navy ROTC scholarship, which effectively paid for my college. And then I was in the Navy for four years, which was pretty interesting and a bit unexpected since that's when the first Gulf War started. So we got mm. <laughs> sent over to the Middle East and didn't anticipate that. And so after the four years I got out, I got a job at a company called Tech Data in Clearwater, Florida. They're a large computer distributor. And I was there for seven years. And it was pretty exciting because this was in the 90s was the computer industry really started to take off. And we went from Fortune 500 to Fortune 100. And I moved up from an individual contributor to director of marketing operations. And in 2000, Dell recruited me. So I moved to Austin, Texas, did some development work for Dell.com. And then I moved to a marketing role where I was a marketing lead with the Dell printer launch, managed pricing strategy, and a few other things. Uh, and from there, that's when the dot-com bubble burst. <laughs> so <laughs> I was at Dell for about three years, and that was the push to start something on my own. And so I co-founded an e-commerce business with another guy in Austin and sold my part of that in 2009 and used those proceeds to start Aransi with a focus on indoor air quality and specifically air purifiers. And my interest in that was because my son suffered with asthma as a child and it was pretty rough, especially as his younger years and elementary school and middle school. And so I've always just had an interest in trying to help him and others like him that suffered respiratory issues. It seems so you do one thing and all of a sudden you're you join the military, you're in the Gulf War, you go into the <laughs> dot com industry and the bubble burst and uh -huh. you're just on all these trends and then air purification hits and then we have a pandemic. Yeah. So, who knew? <laughs> so that must have been good for business. Yeah, the pandemic was incredible because there's more demand than supply. What's been interesting is so many brands entered the market. It was more of a niche market before COVID. And now it's the market's gone back to more or less pre-COVID levels, but now there's just two or three times as many brands as existed before. So it's it's going to be interesting. What I would add is that in during COVID, we merged with an electric motor company in Virginia and that has a proprietary motor technology, which is going to allow us to reshore manufacturing. And so that's really where our focus is now. And 
to me, what's exciting about that is I think we can latch on to the next trend, which is electrification and moving away from fossil fuels. And now that we have this electric motor base, we're starting with air purifiers since that's what we know, but we theoretically could make anything with an electric motor in our facility. And so for me, that's pretty exciting since I think the air purifier market, as much as it's painful to say, it's become more of a commodity since the, there's just too many brands in the space for, the, for what the size of the market is currently. And you mentioned before the show that you were actively bringing this reshoring back from China back to the United States because you can do that almost as cheaply as it was before with China. So talk a little bit about why that is happening and how what it's like to reshore a business. Yeah. So one thing I just have to keep relearning this lesson is it, it always takes longer and costs more than you <laughs> you would think. Yeah. And from a cost standpoint, though, on the product, it's what we've realized is if you're buying components or raw materials, it, the cost is pretty similar here versus in China. The difference is labor. And what we've been focused on is how do we take labor out of the manufacturing assembly of the products? Because if you can take labor out and make it much more efficiently, you can close the gap from a cost standpoint and, may, and possibly make it lower cost than you can from China. The other thing that's happening is there's these tariffs that have been coming on, coming off that are 25%, which is pretty significant. And then ocean freight got crazy expensive during COVID. It's more or less back to where it was pre-COVID, but that's another variable that is, it's a bit of a risk in terms of sourcing from China longer term. And we've talked to a number of companies and there's definitely interest in um, wanting to reshore and not be reliant on really manufacturing anything in China. And it sounds too that you, the other kind of mission that you're focusing on is going from fossil fuels to more electric and with that clean energy mission. So talk a little bit about that. Why is that important to you? Yeah, I just think it's the right thing to do. It's the moment in time. I just remember the 90s in the computer industry. It was like, that's where all the momentum was. If you look at the government and where they're putting the funds in terms of chips, in terms of battery investments and a number of other efforts, as well as tariffs on imports, it's there's definitely, it's pretty obvious that the focus is on how do we make stuff here and how do we make it here in a competitive way? And you can fight it, but that's that's where all the momentum is. And that's really where the future of the market is. I think clean energy is going to, going forward, is going to be similar to what the computer industry was like in the 90s and early 2000s. So I'd like to spend some time talking about your journey with autism. First of all, finding out, you said that you were late stage diagnosed. So what were some of the signs, first of all, and then I'd like to lead the conversation into as far as potentially hiring workers with autism. We look at the fact that the labor market, we need more people, particularly in manufacturing. And we have a lot of people that can do a great job, but maybe due to fear or myths or not knowing, um, not being educated as far as this group of people who may actually make really great employees. So if you can just share a little bit, like I said, at the beginning from diagnosis to what you've discovered and what you're sharing now. 
Yeah, this was something that figured out during COVID. <laughs> Actually, my wife was watching, I think it was CBS Morning Show, and they did a profile on a woman that I think maybe worked for NASA, and she was describing her traits. And it was a profile on her as an autistic person being successful in the workplace. And when she described her traits, it was exactly how I am. And my wife watched it. She's like, oh my gosh, you need to watch this. And if I go back a couple of weeks before that, we had a conversation where she was upset about something, poured out her heart to me, and I wasn't feeling great. And I just had no response. And she and it went from like her being really upset to what is wrong with you? <laughs> you don't have a human emotion. And I just, I have no words. Like I had, my brain was just empty. And, you know, when then when she saw the CBS morning show, you're like, oh, <laughs> that explains a lot. And okay. yeah, so I watched it and I'm like, holy cow, I think that's right. And so I went online and took a online screening tool. And what's pretty interesting is the one of the leading authorities in doing these kinds of assessments or research into autism is this guy, Simon Baron Cohen. He's cousins with Sasha Baron Cohen. He's oh, like a, interesting. yeah, he's a Cambridge professor. And so anyways, he has this 50 question assessment. And so you get a score from zero to 50. Most people score 16 to 18 kind of a range. Autistic folks tend to score above 30. And so I took it and I scored a 43. <laughs> so wow. Like, out of 50. Yeah. And, and then I took several others and they were all pretty consistent. And so I'm like, holy cow, I want to get an official diagnosis. I didn't want to be like a, feel like a poser. Like I'm just at that time, I didn't, I was autistic and I didn't even know a lot about autism. And I started calling to the local autistic clinics or centers in this area. And they're all geared towards children. And then there's one, I live right by Virginia Tech, and there's one that is like part of the campus and they could do it, but they wouldn't be able to see me for a year and a half. I was like, holy cow. And so I, I eventually found someone that did it via telehealth and she's in Oregon. And she did it because her husband was autistic and she wanted to provide the service to other autistic folks, particularly like women that are way underdiagnosed. And so I worked with her for some months and officially got the, the diagnosis. And since then, I've just been reading a lot and just really educating myself on like what autism even is. And it's, it's not exactly, I think, what most people think. It's just really a different way of thinking, perceiving, and communicating um, is largely what it is. And then there's co-occurring conditions, which may or may not be present, which could be like um, speech, cognition, ADHD, whole slew of other things. <laughs> and so it's there's like basic autism, and then there's co-occurring conditions, which most people think of a lot of the co-occurring conditions when they think of autism, and that's not really the core of, of what autism is, but you may have those conditions as well. So for somebody who's not familiar with it, what would be a good definition or examples or something that they may, just to know a little bit more, be comfortable with what it is? Because I think we all have our ideas in our mind of what we think it is, but according to you, it's probably a lot different than what we think. 
Yeah, I think a lot of it is really having awareness for what's going on with the autistic person. It's really just our brains are just wired differently. I don't really view it as it's been stigmatized as a defective person. I just think it's more a left-handed versus right-handed person. It's just your brain just works differently. It's not that it's a bad thing. It's just not the way 98% of the people are wired. <laughs> you're, in the, you're in the 2% group that routine is really important, but routine is a, you, you have routine because it helps you manage anxiety. People aren't sticking to routines to be difficult. It's a way of just being your best self. Another one that is widely prevalent with not understood is sensory sensitivity. So if you think mm -hmm. of the senses, what I would say is what most people find annoying, we can find disabling. It's just a level of intensity. And, and for me, so if I go into a loud restaurant, I can hear like all of the conversations and really none of the conversations. They're all like, if you think of like Charlie Brown's teacher went to the wah wah, <laughs> it's yeah. like that. And then turn the volume up is what a loud restaurant's like for me. And over a while of trying to hear conversations, it becomes so exhausting that you're just, it's, it's like you plugged all the appliances in and you blow the circuit breaker <laughs> and nothing's working. And then it's, why isn't Peter joining in the conversation? And it's, you have no idea how hard this is in this situation. So a lot of it's driven by the environment. And when I talk to other people, they're like, oh yeah, nobody likes that. We just talk louder. And it's, I just don't have that natural ability. It's like, there, there's like certain filters that people have that you could filter out like other tables that are talking and just listen to the person at your table. Mm -hmm. I don't really have all those filters. I'm here in our tables conversation, two tables. over, <laughs> And mm -hmm. they're all, it's like having people talking over each other is what it's like. And it's, oof, it's exhausting. And so it, you just tend not to put yourself in those situations as a means of coping. But that's like, a, I think another difference. And the other thing I have, which is really helpful in the workplace is a hyper-focus. And they call it a state of flow. So I can really get focused on something and I can block out everything going on around me and just have all these positive chemicals going. And so that's really served me well in the workplace because I can just sit for hours on something. I know it's not healthy to <laughs> sit for that long, but I can get completely lost in something and really shift to a higher gear that I intuitively know most people don't have. And oh, so it's interesting because it's both sides. When you're in a loud restaurant, all the words are there and you're hearing everything. But when you're in flow, you're basically hearing nothing because you're focused. Is that something that you can turn on and turn off? That's a stupid question, but how do you get to flow at work and not in a restaurant? Yeah, because at work, it's something, it's a singular thing and I can, it's something I'm interested in and I can focus mm. on it. And then naturally I block everything out. The problem is if somebody comes in, like knocks on my door and says something, it's jarring to mm. come out of that state. It's almost like you're, I don't know if it's quite like a sleep state, but it's like, you're being startled uh, when that happens. And you can't, like in a restaurant, I can't get in a state of flow because I walk in and it's <clears throat> It's like, I can okay. see the volume going up and it's just overwhelming. It's, and I've talked to people and they're like, can't you get used to it? Or can't you just, and I'm like, to me, it's like touching a hot stove. It's, it doesn't matter how many times you touch it, it's right. going to burn. 
It's like, there's no way around that. There's nothing that that anyone can do that can help me in that situation other than don't get in that situation. Don't touch the hot stove. My hand's not going <laughs> to ever get used to it. And from a manufacturing standpoint, because on one side, I'm thinking there's some manufacturing plants are really loud and things are going on, and yet you have the opportunity to get in that routine. So where are really good jobs? If you're thinking of a manufacturer and your experience in manufacturing, where would be some really good places for manufacturers to consider hiring people with your skill set? Yeah. So I guess what I would add is I'm just one person and I just described my experience, but it's like when they say autism is a spectrum, there's like a huge spectrum of abilities. There's some people that are ADHD that I find are super creative in terms of design, uh, coming up with new things. There's others that and they have hyper-focus, but they can get distracted a little bit. Like I, I don't have ADHD at all. I'm like all in on focus. And so for me, it's like process. It's if you look at Silicon Valley, they have a high percentage of autistic folks because computer programming is you just dialed in on the computer coding and you get lost in that. I think you can have someone on assembly line that's doing specific tasks. You can really get focused. Like I can do things that other people would find boring if I'm interested in it. That's the key. Any kind of engineering But if you look at the arts, there's all kinds of creative people like David Byrne from Talking Heads is pretty open about being autistic. And so it's not just the engineer, computer, traditional guy, like I'm a math person, I'm like the typical autistic person, but there's other folks that have different talents. And so it spans almost any job, accounting, I don't think there's a limit to what folks can do. The challenge is most autistic people can't get through the interview process because if you come in, you don't make eye contact. It's, oh, this person's not trustworthy. Or you get asked a question that you haven't thought of before. See, like we tend to be more bottoms up thinkers versus uh, most people are top down thinkers. And so when you ask a question, if it's something we haven't thought of before, we're going through all these options and details. And then it's, so there can be like, I do this myself with some people, like an awkward pause, because I'm thinking through like, how do I best answer that? And the other person's like, are you there? Are you like, and I right. go inward and I have a lot going on internally, but my face shows nothing. And so, it's, and in an interview, it doesn't translate well. Like you're mm-hmm. like, this guy's, or girl is weird. I, I yeah. can't see them being part of our team. And it's really unfortunate because these are some of the most like hardworking, loyal people uh, desperate to work. It's like the PhD that's working at minimum wage. It's like which, And it's uh, the unemployment numbers, I guess, or I've seen some crazy high statistics, like up to 80%. I don't really know what the real number is, but it, it's it's most. And most autistic folks are average to above average intelligence. So it's the other thing is I'm Gen X and grew up in the 70s and 80s. And when I was in elementary school, I think it was one in 2,500 was diagnosed as being autistic. And now it's more than 2%, more than as high as one in 36. 
And so it's wow. not like autistic people didn't exist before. They just weren't, we weren't diagnosed. And anyone that's later millennial and up, unless you have very high support needs, you're going to be late diagnosed autistic because none of us, <laughs> almost none of us were diagnosed. It's just, and so yeah. you just think of how many hundreds of thousands or millions of people that is that have gone through the public school system and trying to get jobs and not really, or being diagnosed with other things and, and not understanding that you're just autistic. And it's just, I don't really think there's anything wrong with anyone that's autistic or just different. It's just, you know, it's just when, the, when you have most people one way and it's like, this is the right way to be. And then you have a small group of people who are a different way. It's, oh no, you're, <laughs> you guys are right. wrong. Yeah. And when it comes to workplace culture, because again, there's so many interesting points because we want people to get along and we have this, this friendship, this relationship building, which is difficult for people who are on the schedule, on the, on the spectrum because of what you said of the, of the, the not knowing how to get to those emotions or just asking questions, having to spend more time processing questions that you've ever um, that you haven't heard before. And then I think about one of my side hustles is I actually teach HR law on for mm. virtual programs. And I think about the ADA. So in the interview process, it's not like you can have that conversation. Do you have a disability? Because of course, that would go against the ADA. So how could a manufacturer craft an interview Is it sending out the questions before time? Is it so give some ideas because like you just said, if I have somebody come in and I'm interviewing and I don't know about autism and you're not making eye contact and you're staring off into space when I'm asking questions, I'm going to do that. Hey, this guy's not going to be a fit. But if I have an awareness that he may, he or me, she may be an awesome employee and can do exactly what I want them to do. We just have to not only have an awareness from my standpoint, but to share this with the rest of the people so that we can make those, I don't even want to use the word accommodations, but that level of understanding that just because this person is different doesn't mean that he's any less than anybody else on there. Yeah. And I would say, you know, this, I don't know who said this, but I agree with it is that autistic folks are more like the canary in the coal mine and changes that you make to the benefit of the autistic person helps everyone. And so if you're doing an interview, what I've seen, which when I've talked with autistic people, they're just blown away by this is it's about setting expectations and having an understanding for what to expect. And so if there's an interview, if you could give someone a document that says, this is where you go, this is what time, this is who you're meeting, this is who they are, this is what you wear. These are the questions we're going to ask you. This is how your day is going to go or your two hours or whatever it is. And so someone can mentally prepare for that and they can see the questions that are relevant to the job. And so they can think through like, how do I best answer this? Because the person doing the interview wants to do the best job, but it's just the interview process is largely set up, in my opinion, for social extroverts, which is the traditional... Right. There's this hierarchy, invisible hierarchy, and autistic folks tend to be towards the bottom of the social hierarchy. And this kind of levels the playing field. You know, it's 
It's like if you go to a wedding or something and you're like, this is the, this is the agenda or a meeting and this is what to expect. For me, elementary school was just a nightmare. And then when I got to sixth grade, I had a schedule. I knew like where to be when it, it, it eliminated like so much chaos for me. And I went from the bottom, they like barely getting through to like the advanced classes in six months, just switching and having a schedule, having expectations and as well as some other things. And I think in the job environment, I think it's just asking. And there are autistic people that will ask for accommodations, but it's largely around what are the questions? Let me prepare for this so I can show up and help you answer the best way possible. And I think that when I've talked with dozens of autistic folks, and usually when they ask for accommodations, it's the interview gets canceled which I can't imagine is great from an ADA perspective, or they get to the interview, they get one question in, which is some open-ended question they don't know what to do with, and they can't even get an answer out. And they're like, oh, you're not the right person for us. Um, Or it's, can you provide questions ahead of time? And which is an equity issue. And what they're met with is, oh, that wouldn't be fair to the other applicants, which is more of an equality answer, not an equity. Like it's equity is about having what you need to be successful. Quality is treating everyone the same. And it's it's just, I think it's just an awareness issue. And I think most people want to do the right thing. They just don't know what to do. And I think providing basically setting expectations and sticking to it is the best thing you can do for an autistic person. So as you're advocating for autism awareness in the workplace, what does that look like? What are you recommending? How are you getting the word out to help both the potential employees and their employers? Yeah, I'm I'm doing podcasts like this, I'm writing, reaching out to folks. And I talk with a lot of autistic people. There's a pretty good, as, as awful as Twitter can be, there's a pretty good autistic community on there, which is like, we can chat amongst ourselves. I see what people's challenges are and what's working. And it's really just about sharing information and seeing what works because this is all in the last 15 years, or so, really in the last 10 years, the diagnostics change, but really in the last 10, 15 years is when the diagnosis rates really started to get to approach to like actually capture the folks in this group. And so I think there's just, it's really just an awareness thing. And so for me, it's just getting out, having conversations with people. And for me, it's when I started off, it was trying to help the autistic people and help them get through. And then I realized it's not the autistic people that are the problem. It's the people that are not autistic, that don't understand the autistic person that are setting up hurdles for folks in it just without knowing they just not in a, doing it in a bad way. It's just like, I had no clue that this was a problem for someone. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said, even with the asking for the questions ahead of time and being met with the response, that wouldn't be fair. It's this level of trust that we always, you all, it's almost like people think you're going to cheat on the test if you're giving them the answer beforehand, where you're just, you're trying to work with a group of people who are just wired differently. Yeah. Then. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a meeting and something comes up and it's the next day. I'm like, this is what I should have said. (laughs) It's like, and it's, and I just tell people like, 
this is how I am. Like I, I'm in the moment, I'm not going to know exactly how to answer, but I bet tomorrow I'm going to come back with a fantastic answer. And it's right. It's an adjustment <laughs> for them. So what are some of your favorite resources that companies can reach out and learn more about autism and some of the recommendations that you're making for the, especially for the interview process, because it sounds like that's the biggest bottleneck. Yeah, that's the biggest. Autistic kids grow up to be autistic adults. It's like at 18, you just don't magically, like the autism doesn't leave you. It's, It's the core of who you are. It governs everything that you think and do in all your behaviors. And so it's, when we think of an autistic person, usually we think of like a young boy like that's probably the image that comes in and i did the math and it's like almost 80 percent of autistics are adults and Mm. it's like men and women it's all all races it's it's who we think of as autistic is not like who led to think about it and in terms of resources i always gravitate towards folks that are autistic themselves especially therapists they have the lived experience we're not always great at communicating what it's like to be autistic. And I think that's been hard because it's like people don't know what they don't know. And if you don't tell them what you're experiencing, it's like they're not mind readers. And But there are folks like Dr. Tony Atwood. He's a British. He's been doing this for 50 years. He's based out of Australia. He's fantastic. Simon Baron Cohen's a good researcher, but there's a number of autistic books that I, you know, a number of books that are written by autistic people. I tend to stay away from organizations that promote autism or have puzzle pieces kind of things because there's a history of (laughs) trying to cure autism versus recognizing that it's just a difference. There's no cure. There's been a lot of trauma that autistic folks have been through, which has amounted to more or less conversion therapy. And so if you Google autism and look at organizations, unfortunately, some of the ones that come up at the top are not necessarily (laughs) advocating in the best interest of autistic folks and lean towards the academic as well as therapists with the lived experience. Wow. We have covered a lot in our time together. And I know, and I've learned a lot too, because I know I've seen that in some of my workshops where I have an activity where people need to come up right off the bat with things. And I, my last one, I had a gentleman come up to me and he said, that was the most painful thing I've ever did. I just, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't think that fast. And I was like, okay, that's there, there may be. For me, it was a good understanding, but I think after talking to you, now I see that maybe he is on that spectrum and I just didn't have the tools to recognize it. So, yeah. yeah. So if somebody did want to continue the conversation with you, what's the either about Aransi and what you've been doing with reshoring and all of the other skills <laughs> that you bring to the workplace or to see what they can do to better their processes with autism in the workplace. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Yeah, I would say LinkedIn is the best way. It's Peter-Mann, M-A-N-N. And yeah, I should pop up and yeah, happy to connect with anyone. Okay. All right. Peter, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. 
I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow the network, the stronger and deeper the community will all have. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.